Okay, so we've been through the seven seals and the trumpets, and now we're talking about the bowls, bowls of God's wrath. So, uh, again, I'll just show this every time because it's kind of the, the thesis that we're trying to carry through for the book of Revelation, which, as many have seen, the, the heart of the book is chapters 12 through 14, the war in heaven, the cosmic conflict, and that we understand the seals, trumpets, and bowls as informing us of dis- different aspects uh, of the cosmic conflict. Okay? And so this time, um, and uh, really it's, this is really two lectures packed into one. I just had so much information to, to try to get through this. Uh, we should read the end of Revelation 15, which is helpful as we come into this, but uh, we'll just start with Revelation 16.1. Then I heard a loud angel from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Okay, so we're trying to understand what that is. Okay, now one of the points that um, I've made before is that we see the, the seals, trumpets, and bowls as overlapping rather than on a chronological timeline. And remember our example is like a, a symphony where you have a theme that is repeated and you get variations on the theme. That's what we see um, in these three sequences. And there are so many specific parallels between the trumpets and the bulls. This just could not have happened uh, accidentally. So let's just compare the first and second trumpets and bulls. So in the trumpet sequence, which we went through last time, we have hail, fire, and blood that fall on the earth. In the bull sequence, the bull is poured on the earth. Okay, in the second trumpet, we have a blazing mountain that falls into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea creatures die. And in the bull sequence, the sea turns to blood and every living thing in them dies. So remember, it's, it's recapitulation, but it's also crescendos. So we go from a third to everything. Okay, so the bulls does describe an, an intensification of what is going on. Okay, in the third trumpet, we have a blazing star. Remember Isaiah 14? That's the imagery used there that falls on a third of the rivers and fountains. And in the bowl sequence, the bowl is poured on rivers and fountains. Okay, again, very intentional, the, the use, uh, the parallels here between the trumpets and the bowls. Okay, in the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck and there's darkness. Okay, in the fourth bowl, the bowl is poured again on the sun and this time resulting in suffering. The fifth trumpet, which we talked about last time, the shaft of the bottomless pit. Remember, the the fallen star is given the key, opens the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the sun and air are darkened with smoke. And then we talked about the locusts that come out and torture people who are not protected by God's seal. Okay, in the bull sequence, the bull is thrown on the uh, poured out on the throne of the beast, plunging it into darkness. Okay, again we have darkness, and people nod their tongues in agony. So kind of overlapping with the the torture here in the fifth trumpet. Okay, the sixth trumpet. And here, I mean, if we want a stronger marker of continuity, there just couldn't be a a stronger one than what we see in the sixth trumpet and bowl. The four angels bound at the great Euphrates River are released. And then remember, there are two million cavalry which kill one-third of humanity. And in the sixth bowl... The bowl is poured out on the great river Euphrates. Again, just accidental that it happens to be the great river Euphrates and the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl. I mean, all of these things, so much 
in parallel. So we're going over the same material. We're recapitulating the trumpets, but again with a greater intensity. So we have war described in the sixth trumpet. Two million cavalry kill a third of humanity. There's war in the sixth bowl where all the kings assemble for war and we have Armageddon. And the same ending point. Seventh trumpet, seventh bowl. The seventh trumpet ends with loud voices in heaven that announce the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ. We have a scene at the covenant box with flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Okay, same thing. Seventh plague ends with a loud voice from the throne in the temple. So we're in the throne room in both scenes. And with, almost verbatim here, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a terrible earthquake. And remember, the seventh seal ends with the same thing. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a terrible earthquake. Okay, so they're all converging here on the same um, climax. So I find that very interesting. And I think what's important here is who did we uh, define as the active agent in the trumpet sequence? You know, the third trumpet was the fallen star. The fifth trumpet describes the star that had fallen to earth, that had the key to the shaft and the locusts come out. And then we're told who that individual is, the destroyer. Okay, so we have, uh, I think, clear demonic activity going on in the trumpet sequence. And so we see an overlap. We're seeing the same thing here repeated in the plagues. That's why it's so helpful if we see these three cycles as overlapping because one informs us about the other. Okay, do we have satanic activity in the bowl sequence? Clearly we do. In the sixth bowl, I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Um, just, I think, so important for our theology that we not just see God and us. If, if it's only God and us as the acting subjects, then anything that happens, it's God's divine punishment. There, there's no room for a third player in all of this. And clearly we have another individual that's, that's very actively described here in the book of Revelation. Okay, so uh, I'll just throw in a couple of quotes, not for proof, of this, but just as thoughts to consider for for those of you that are Adventists here, just on this uh, kind of theme. Read through these quickly. This is from a book called Great Controversy. That Satan works through the elements also to garner his harvest of unprepared souls. He has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature, and he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God allows. When he has suffered to, when he was allowed to afflict Job, how quickly flocks and herds, servants, houses, children were swept away. And isn't that amazing that the, even the elements were controlled in the uh, destruction of, of Job's family? <clears throat> it is God that shields his creatures and hedges them in from the power of the destroyer. Okay, and what does Revelation describe? God is, the angels are holding the winds back. But the Christian would have shown contempt for the law of Jehovah. And we're going to spend a lot of time, what does that mean? What is the law? And the Lord will do just what he has declared that he would. Okay, what will he do? He will withdraw his blessings from the earth and remove his protecting care from those who are rebelling against his law. Again, what does that mean? And teaching and forcing others to do the same. Satan has control of all whom God does not especially guard. He will favor and prosper some in order to further his own designs. 
and he'll bring trouble upon others and lead men to believe that it is God who is afflicting them. Okay, and just one more. Um, I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It's Again, very different. Who do we see as the one actively involved in all of this? Okay, and this quote continues. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea, on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short. And if he is not restrained, we shall see more terrible manifestations of his power than we've ever dreamed of. So... Um, for me, what's been most helpful for my own understanding, at least from an Adventist perspective, is this con- cosmic conflict that centers on the character of God and with an active opponent. Okay? As uh, some have said, we want to send the bill for suffering to the right address. Okay? Not to God, but to someone else. So our key questions, I think, and uh, I appreciated uh, three of you had some good talks with me uh, during the last week about some comments I made very quickly toward the end of uh, last week's Bible study that I thought meant we should really go into it a little bit more. Key questions as we consider um, whether there is divine retribution for sin um, or how does all of that work. And I think these are the key things that we need to answer. So I'm going to try to go through this quickly here in, in the time that remains. We need to understand what is sin and to understand, or at least to consider, uh, does sin primarily, is it bad because it has inherent natural consequences, or is it primarily bad because there is an external imposed penalty, or both? How do we understand God's law? Is God's law like a law of gravity? Is it descriptive of how things are? Or is God's law proscriptive, meaning it's imposed? Okay, maybe we can give an example here for the neuroscience course. If I tell you, you must attend class. It's a law for neuroscience. You must attend class and you must read your handouts. Okay, that would be descriptive because if you don't do that, what, what is the punishment? Well, you don't do well, right? I mean, you it's a self-inflicted kind of a punishment. If I told you that, um, I don't know, on Tuesdays, you must wear red socks to neuroscience class. Okay, that would be an arbitrary law. And what would be the penalty? Well, there would be no penalty for that unless I imposed something on the people who didn't wear red socks. Okay, so that would be an arbitrarily imposed law, which by definition would have to be externally imposed. There's nothing inherently bad or destructive about it. Okay, so very much tied in with this. How do we understand God's wrath? Okay, is God's wrath a natural consequence or is God's wrath something that is externally imposed? And on this, I hope um, all of you were here. We had a whole lecture on God's wrath. And I don't know of another subject, perhaps other than God's love, that is so uh, redundant. Okay, we talked about planned redundancy in the neuroscience course where we cover the key things again and again and again and again. And next time you read through the Bible, just every time you come to God's wrath, circle it and read what happened. Okay, it's, it's very, very enlightening. 
case, so we'll just touch on that very briefly since we had a lecture on it earlier. So let's uh, first talk about sin. And I think we, we all have to agree, everyone would have to agree, that there is an inherent penalty for sin. Okay, and there are lots of verses like this that we read last time. Judah, you've brought this on yourself by the way you've lived, by the things you've done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. And we can just think of lots and lots of examples. You know, if uh, you are an alcoholic and you beat your children, there are inherent natural consequences that happen to the third and fourth generation. And there's an inherent. I mean, we can prove this now through science. Okay, so everyone would, would agree with that, that there is an inherent consequence, that if you don't brush your teeth, okay, dentists don't impose a penalty and insert cavities, right? You get cavities because you didn't brush your teeth. All right, so there are obviously inherent consequences to sin, but the real question is, is there also an externally imposed consequence for sin? And to answer that, um, again, we need to, I think, understand the nature of God's law. Okay, descriptive of how things are or imposed. So what is the essence of the law? Okay, and the New Testament makes it really clear that the law really comes down just to one thing. Okay, Paul said the only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. Okay, so the question we kind of need to understand is, well, why do we have all these laws in the Bible if we really only need one? If you love, you obey the whole law. In Galatians, for the whole law is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? That would be, I think, descriptive. You break the law of love. What's the opposite of love? Well, selfishness, hatred, rebellion, murder, strife, all of these things that are a consequence of breaking a natural law. It's like, like a law of gravity. Remember, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So all law comes down to that one thing, how we love God and others. Okay, so uh, if that is the whole law, why do we have it so expanded in the Old Testament? We have Ten Commandments, and then we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of additional commandments on top of that. Okay, but remember that what are the first four commandments? Aren't these to bring us to love God? And the, the last six are to bring us to love our neighbor. Now, they're given as a, in a restrictive form. We can see them that way at least. Okay, but it is a, a step in the direction of love. And when Jesus talked about the two greatest commandments, he got that from the Old Testament, the books of Moses. So it's in there, okay? But the people needed these Ten Commandments. And one thing that's important, I think, when we consider the Ten Commandments, you know, we, we sometimes just imagine, boy, this is a perfect setting, and God came and he gave his law to a people who were just uh, obediently waiting to receive this. But just remember the journey out to Mount Sinai, how rebellious the people were. Okay, these were rebels who were distrustful, okay, tried to get rid of Moses many times. And so the Ten Commandments were in that setting. Okay, and I always have just, just to make that believable, just read some of the other commands that these people had. Whoever hits his father or his mother is to be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. Okay, were there people hitting their parents, cursing their parents? Yes. 
Put to death any woman who practices, practices magic. Put to death anyone who has sexual relations with an animal. Condemn to death anyone who offers sacrifices to any god except me. Okay, you only give these rules to a, a rebellious people. Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Do not disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother. You must not disgrace your own mother. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. I mean, it's, it's that God had to spell out these kinds of rules. It tells us the nature of the people who were there. Okay, so as rebellion increases, and you will learn this as parents, laws have to increase in proportion. What God really wants is one thing. But you can't just tell these people, hey, I want you to love. And if you do that, all will be well. No, they needed lots and lots of commands. So um, I, the illustration I like for this is if you're with your family at breakfast in the morning and you have to give them the equivalent of the Ten Commandments, which would be you tell your son, uh, please don't kill anyone at school today. Uh, you have to tell your daughter, please stop stealing from your friends and stop lying. And you have to tell your wife not to commit adultery. What does that say about your family? Okay, so God had to meet a rebellious people with some rules because they needed it. But it, again, it was a step towards something much more meaningful. So who needs laws, rules? In First Timothy, we know that the law is good if it is used as it should be. It must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, and goes on. Okay, so God had to meet people with those rules. And we, we can see those as, uh, read those as being artificially imposed, but in the setting of the rebellion, uh, we see that that isn't the case. Okay, so Paul really answers, why do we need the law? What was the purpose of the law? It was added in order to show what wrongdoing is. Okay, because when there's a rule for something, you see, oh, that behavior conflicts with that rule. It highlights our own uh, rebelliousness. And I like how the, the message uh, paraphrase has this. The law was added because we needed it when we were such rebels. Until the time we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. Okay, so... Uh, the rules expanded at a time uh, when it was necessary. Okay, so just as another illustration, if you have a nice, friendly class like this, or like all of you are, I mean, in all the time I've been teaching the neuroscience course, we've, we've never had to lay down rules about no talking in class and, and all of that. Okay, but, you know, if the back row here is, if there's drug use going on, and if occasionally medical students murdered each other and things like that, um, guess what? You have lots and lots and lots of rules. You really only want one thing. You want an attentive class that's paying attention, that's interested in learning, that's excited about the material. Okay, but you really can't command that, but it might be necessary if there was a significant rebellion. <clears throat> okay, so we just have all of these rules. Don't cook a young sheep or goat in its mother's milk. That can sound arbitrary. Okay, but it's been understood that this is what the pagan cultures did. So the rules are to help distinguish between what was going on around God's children and he wanted them to be different. So I won't read this, but we have all these details about the tunics of the priests and that they're even about their underwear. Okay, why all of these rules? 
Why don't use steps to climb to my altar because that will expose your nakedness. So if all of these things, why is that? Well, would you ever confuse this individual here, this high priest with all of these garments with some of the pagan uh, religions where there were fertility cults and all of that? So we have all of these rules so that God can help to get a wedge in and to separate his people from, sadly, the, the pagan religions that his people were so attracted to. So we need lots and lots of rules as a protection and to create uh, some separation. <clears throat> so um, what we see in the Old Testament is many, 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 many commands given for a specific time and a specific culture, Okay, which we clearly can't apply today, Okay, or we would be taking... Sabbath breakers out and stoning them after the Bible study and, and doing all kinds of things. But it was necessary for a certain time and culture. Okay? We have uh, Ten Commandments, okay, which again point towards love, okay, but still spelled out here and don't do this, don't do that, love your neighbor. And, but ultimately it all comes to love. Okay, and this again, I would say, is descriptive. It's it's like a law of gravity. We break the law of love, and there are natural consequences. So this gets uh, to three types of uh, obedience, and this is kind of like the if you've learned about the Kohlberg stages of of development, that uh, the lowest stage is that we obey for hope of reward or fear of punishment. Okay, God was meeting those people. Okay, and he, what did he do? He offered them lots of rewards for obedience, punishments for disobedience. Okay, but that is really the, the lowest level for obedience. And God is willing to meet people there. Okay, you meet children there. Okay, but that's not what God wants. Even this one sounds good, and it is, it is an improvement. We obey God because we love him. Okay, of course, we should obey God because we love him. But, you know, would you be happy, uh, let's say, my daughter is a sophomore in college, Okay, maybe when she was five or six, there were some things, you know, not to run out in the street, and there was punishments if she did. Okay, but do I want her in college, not running out in the streets, not because it makes any sense to her, but just because, well, I love dad, so I'm not going to do that. Now, there's a higher reason for doing what is right. And the highest reason is that we agree with God. We agree with it, that everything he has asked us to do makes sense. Okay, there's understanding. Yes, love has to be a part of that. But what God has asked us to do makes sense intelligently with our reason and we do it as right because it is right and not for hope of reward or punishment. And in fact, all of this gets kind of flipped on its head in the New Testament. What's the reward in the New Testament? You will be persecuted as I have been persecuted. Carry your cross. Okay, it's not, uh, yes, there is a reward down the road, but in this life, Okay, we follow Jesus, and that uh, very often entails suffering. Okay, these people at the foot of Mount Sinai were not prepared for that. They needed threats of punishment and hope of reward. <clears throat> okay, so our one command from Jesus, it's just interesting the way that he would word this here, and now I give you a new command. Of course, it's not a new command. It's just no one's ever done it. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must Love one another. If you have love for one another, other, then everyone will know you are my disciples. And of course, the Christian church has been well known because of our love throughout the world. No, wouldn't this be wonderful if, uh, 
you know. Well, you're a Christian. You're those people that love, even enemies. But sadly, that's, that's not our reputation. That's our one commission. <clears throat> okay, so uh, the law here, can we call it the law of love? The law of love involves giving, serving, loving. It's outgoing. It's love that is concerned for others just as much as we're concerned about self. That is the fundamental law, and that is not imposed on us. So probably our key text here for what is sin, 1 John 3, 4. Whoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law because sin is a breaking of the law. And I like the Good News Bible. I use a lot of it in this Bible study, but that isn't a very good translation of this verse. Okay, the breaking of the law, in the Greek this is anomia, anomia. Nomia is law. So anomia is literally lawlessness. Okay, so everyone, many translations uh, have it this way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness or rebelliousness. Okay, sin is really rebellion against God's way. Sin is lawlessness, rebelliousness. So again, what is sin? Having said all of that, I would say sin is a state of internal rebelliousness against God and his law of love. It's an internal thing. We, we tend to see sin as behavior. Okay, but it's foundations. Sin is something much deeper. It's an internal um, a state of mind, really. Uh, Jesus described it that way when he talked about the Pharisees. And he said, you clean the outside of your cup and plate. Remember how they tried to obey, keeping all the laws? While the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first, and then the outside will be clean too. So despite all of their external good behavior, they were rebels on the inside. And that rebellion manifest as they crucified Jesus. Okay, so again, externally, we can somewhat keep it all together. Okay, but if we're just trying to rule keep, we can be rebels to the core. So sin leads to external sinful actions. And let's give a parallel here. Okay, we have, uh, let's say, a condition like bacterial meningitis. Symptoms, headache and fever. Okay, how do you treat headache and fever? Well, you can give narcotics for the headache. You can give non-steroidals and other things that might bring the fever down. Okay, but it, does this, uh, this how you treat bacterial meningitis? Well, you might, sure, you would relieve some suffering. You give a patient some of these medications, but your patient is going to die if you don't treat something more foundational than the symptoms. So what is the root cause? It's a bacterial infection. And the treatment, antibiotics. Treating the root cause is what ultimately leads to the resolution of the headache and fever. And untreated bacterial meningitis will lead to death, typically. Okay, so let's use that as a parallel for our sin model here. Sin, symptoms of sin, the externals. Murder, selfishness, stealing, lying, we could make a really long list. Okay, that is the external, those are the symptoms. Okay, treatment, well, God has used lots of rules, but does that cure the problem? Okay, the root cause, I would say, is a breakdown in our trusting relationship with God. The root cause is rebelliousness against God's way, which is to love, which is to serve, which is to give. Okay, and it's another verse I like on sin. Anything that is not based on faith could use the word trust. Same Greek word, faith or trust, is sin. Sin's a breakdown in trust with God. 
Okay, and the treatment then, and what, why do we have so much talk about faith in the Bible? Trust. It's restoring our trust and relationship with God. That is a found, more a foundational way of bringing about healing. Okay, not working on rules to uh, improve our behavior. It is getting to something that is deep to the core. When our trust and our relationship with God is restored, then something beautiful begins to happen from within. Okay, and untreated, sin leads to death, self-destruction. So again, coming back to our question here, God's law descriptive or proscriptive? If God's law is an imposed, is God's law an imposed legal decree? If so, then the punishment, I would say, is externally imposed. In this model, Jesus saves by suffering God's imposed punishment for the breaking of the law. Okay, but is God's law rather a principle like gravity? It's a principle of how God's universe operates, the law of love. And in this model, God seeks to save us from the sin that inherently seeks to destroy what did Jesus do? He restores our trust, the broken relationship. And again, I would say on the cross, Jesus reveals the terrible consequence of the ultimate separation that occurs between us and God caused by sin. Okay, so uh, two different ways of looking at things. Now, uh, someone brought up to me, um, and uh, see, they're not here today, which is too bad, but uh, someone talked with me last time. Well, all the times in the Old Testament, I looked it up in the NIV 28 times, we have the phrase, I will punish. So how can we say that there isn't a, a retributive punishment when we have all this, this mountain of evidence? Okay, and, and so I found about the, the worst, well, I shouldn't say the worst, but the, the strongest one I could find. And I thought, well, let's just read it and talk about it here in Leviticus 26. God would say, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. And so especially in the books of Moses, we have... God really does it to us, okay? But again, I would see God meeting people down here. God speaking a language of punishment and reward to lead us to what he really wants, which is love. And, and you know, again, when you're parents, you will do this. You can't uh, intellectually explain to a child uh, maybe why they should brush their teeth or why they shouldn't go in certain places. And so sometimes you just have to say, look, I will do this if you do that again. Okay, and to protect your child, even for a time, the only reason not to do it is fear of dad. Okay, but eventually your child will grow up and understand why. Okay, um, so many of these. I just, uh, one more here. Even in the Ten Commandments, where God says he will punish the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
Again, does God really do that? Does God punish, not for something you did, but for something your great-great-grandfather did? It's right there. Okay, and here, even in the Bible, we just read on. We get to Ezekiel, and it's very clear that God doesn't do that. A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good. Evil people will suffer for the evil or by the evil they do. Okay, turn away from all the evil you are doing and don't let your sin destroy you. Okay, so God speaks a language, meets us where we are. So one more quote here, and then I just say a few words about God's wrath. Again, there's another quote here uh, from Ellen White that, that I appreciate. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Again, a a natural consequence. So what is being held back? We have these angels holding back the four winds. And in the end here, coming up to the the plagues, we have everything seeming to ripen. Okay, And then the winds are let go, and we have a description of God's wrath. And and I would see this ripening as really an an understanding. Okay, There's a separation that seems to happen in Revelation. We have people that have the mark of the beast. We have people that have the seal of God. And it just seems like there are two very different camps that come to uh, fruition. Okay, so what is God's wrath? And I can't go through all of the verses, but it's, it's so redundant. Here in Deuteronomy, my anger or wrath will flame up like a fire and consume the roots of the mountains and on and on. And whenever you come to a description of God's wrath, just keep reading. Okay, and you will find something like this. They failed, just a few verses later, they failed to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a 1,000 defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Here's why. The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And so we see on uh, literally dozens of occasions in the Old Testament where God's wrath is God handing over, abandoning, forsaking, giving up, Okay, that kind of um, language. Okay, and the one that is probably repeated the most is the warning or the description about the Babylonian captivity. Okay, if you just read through the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel with this thought in mind, what is God's wrath? Okay, they are warning about the Babylonian captivity. Well, Ezekiel, uh, after the fact, or, or I should say before the third invasion, and you'll, you have lots of verses like this. God's words, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, my fury, I will kill everyone living in the city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation. It will be given over, handed over, forsaken to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. So again, the description is, in my wrath, I will kill. I will destroy. But we just here we can read history. What actually happened? Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, that's, that's God's wrath. So, in Paul, I think just, it's all condensed. He takes everything in the Old Testament, and in Romans 1, he tells us, okay, here's a condensed definition. What is God's wrath? 
God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them. Okay, but again, don't stop reading when you see that. How does he punish? And I won't read this, but three times. almost seems like he wants to make sure we, we don't miss the point. What does he do? He gives them up. He gives them up. He gives them up. So God's wrath is, is allowing the consequences of our own choice to, to separate. So uh, I think that's, that's a nice uh, description. And even uh, I thought about this one. What happened to the people that rejected Jesus? Okay, this, this sounds angry here in First Thessalonians. In this way, they have brought to completion all the sins they've always committed, and now God's anger or wrath has at last come down on them. Okay, what happened? Well, Jerusalem was burned down in 70 AD, but again, who did it? It's the Romans. So the, the wrath here was the, the separation and a horrible uh, natural consequence. And of course, we, we tied all of this together with Jesus, who cried out the very important words, why have you forsaken me? Why have you handed me over? Why have you abandoned me? As the really the, the clearest, you want to see what God's wrath is. Okay, the father didn't kill his son on the cross. Okay, what we see here is a, is a separation. We see the full malignant, inherently destructive nature of the sin problem. So I think we can really bring all of these questions that we have um, to the cross. So many things um, are answered here. But I think what we're going to do now is uh, uh, we're going to go back and, and talk about some things like the mark of the beast, the seal of God, and, and fill in a lot of details uh, the rest of the way on the book of Revelation. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for um, at least an understanding uh, the book of Revelation and this passage that uh, it doesn't just stand alone, but that you've given us so much uh, in the Bible that we can come equipped to understand these difficult words and especially help us as we look at what goes on in our world and potentially what happens in the future, that we're able to understand um, the character and the actions of the lamb and the other beast and that we can clearly distinguish your kingdom from any other kingdoms. Amen.